have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the grizzly phantom from my grave. Grizzly? Grizzly. Why grizzly? Because that's the quote from the episode. Well, I, I understand it's the quote from the episode, but at least put something fitting for myself. I mean, I think I'm quite dashing for a phantom. And that same phantom you are listening to, because I forget my name in this podcast, it's the Unplugged Professor. And the episode we're talking about today is episode 23, also known in some circles as Condemned Woman. Oh. Oh. Oh, oh yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Fitting. I mean, this one I'm not even going to object to. I mean, yes. I'm almost kind of disappointed that, like, it, it, it's just kind of obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I'm okay with that, though. <laughs> it was written by Trisha Brock, who previously wrote episode 17 which was the episode following Leland's death when they had the sort of weird wake party at Sarah's place okay. at the Palmer household. I can, I can see it. I can see it. Okay. And it was also directed by Leslie Linka Glotter, who directed three previous episodes. Uh, do you know those episodes? Nope. Nope. I didn't write them all. There's three of them. Khalil, like, this is, like, your big job. Yeah, my big job. You you get the first two (laughs) minutes. You can handle that, big boy. You got this. (laughs) I can't look these things up. I can't, like, compare. Yeah. So, well, I'm sure you did a great job. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'm talking to the director, not you. (laughs) I'm trying to give credit to the people who worked hard on this. I think it's a well-written, well-directed episode. Excellent. Uh, We open this episode up on yet another chessboard scene. I feel like that's kind of the norm these days. It is. And this time, the very first shot is of an owl. Which immediately remind us of our discussion we had last time about how the owls are everywhere. In this episode, they had the audacity to open up on an owl. But... But barely what? any owls anywhere else in the episode. Uh, I mean, is that not true? It depends. There was less owls here than usual. Depends if you believe my owl craze theories. Well, no, I mean like actual literal owls. There's not a lot of actual literal owls. How shown. do you, like, does that make like the owls that we presume to be like Bob and everything to be metaphorical well, owls? Those are the owls that aren't what they seem. These are the owls that are what they seem. <laughs> they are literal owls. <laughs> they are actually owls. <laughs> True owls, if you will. Trowels. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also connecting to our discussion from last episode, uh, the opening has Wyndham Earl's narration and he speaks of Dale having a hesitant sort of tentative pattern to his behavior. Yeah, and it's... The fact that his heart is not fully in the game. There's just too many things distracting him from the outside. Wyndham Earl wants full attention on himself. And it reminds me a lot of the discussion we had on how Cooper is a bit indecisive. And if we go with your theories that the White Lodge means conviction, a sense of um, purpose and identity, Mm -hmm. then the opposite is true of the Black Lodge. Someone who is confused, perhaps muddled, uh, conflicted. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Dale Cooper's being called out on that. Yeah. No, rightfully so. It's uh, not that I don't want him to work on these other trials, and I don't care no, about these other characters. No, you're on Team Merle. You actively want Dale Cooper <laughs> to get his comeuppance. He will. He's probably going to pay the price of trying to juggle too much at once. And Lucy, thankfully, doesn't do that. Lucy, thankfully, handles one thing at a time. She's told to do what she needs to do. She says, paper and Pete, got it. I'll do it alphabetically. Peter and Pete. 
Peeper and Pete. Peter and Paper. Um, yeah, no, and I actually really enjoy just little moments of humor with Lucy like that. Like a little little line to remind us, okay, the writers still know what they're doing with that. Yeah, and it's good to know that Lucy is still doing her job because that is a preference. That is a preference at the Sheriff's Department. Um, and also As really enjoy... to. <laughs> I don't know. I really enjoyed Harry's comment uh, looking at the terrifying mask on the counter and being like, she was beautiful. And that's, Just supposing that Caroline must have been beautiful. Like, it, that's the thing. Like, whenever you see something like that, maybe people do see beauty inside of stuff like that. The past image of a loved one and so on. So it doesn't let, even look like anything. Like, if, okay, if you saw that, you you wouldn't see beauty. I think that they, that that death mask has some very nice cheekbones. It's a well-made death mask, a I guess. A cute little nose. But to presume that she was beautiful from it, I guess he's just trying to support his friend. No, you okay, don't judge people for what they see in pieces of art, okay? Stop bashing on Truman's tastes. Bash on his Taste in love life, not in art life. Beauty is in the eye of the misguided beholder. And we get to behold Pete's amazing chess playing today. Oh, yes. This episode. We got earlier a note that they were going to try to get the move post on the Gazette because that is the request of Wyndham Earl. Yes. Make the move or I'll make it for you. Another sort of thing, which if he's able to move the pieces, maybe they're one and the same, but that's just me mm. being crazy here. Mm. Now, speaking of you being crazy, Pete references a certain Capablanca again. Oh, yes. And the fun little match that he had. I didn't really have as much time as I would like to mm. look back into that chess match. Maybe it's the one that he lost in. Maybe he did super well in. Who knows? Regardless, Capablanca, good chess times. I suppose Pete didn't have much time either because the Gazette only, only had Five minutes. So much time. He's like, hmm, there's so many moves. You got to be so careful with these. You got to make sure you got to the right move. You got to make sure you got the right style. You got to get them moving around. Pete, you have five minutes. Okay, we're moving this pawn one why space is, forward. Why is Pete like a racehorse announcer? <laughs> he's he's a fast, smooth <laughs> An talk. An auctioneer. You see, you got to fast talk. You got to smooth around these pieces. You got to know what way they go so that they can go whatever is way this, they need to your, go. Is this your Pete impression? This is this is my Pete's emotional impression. Oh, because he, I don't know. I've ever heard Pete have those emotions. <laughs> No, he is trying to plan ahead. He's trying mm. to, quote unquote, fast talk his way through chess so it can distract him uh, the other side well, enough to try to avoid as many pieces not being removed as possible. He said that the move they have planned, it's guaranteed to cause some sleepless nights. Yep, even though it's like five or six moves until like someone could like be taken away, a piece being taken In away. In this game, stall tactics might be the approach. Maybe so. So uh, overall, at first I was like, <laughs> peace. That's a pawn moving forward. I wouldn't fall asleep. I would be able to sleep comfortably while playing the game. But no, he is playing smart if mm -hmm. the goal is to avoid pieces being taken. So sure. commendable, Pete. Commendable. Now, Harry Truman, the sheriff, is worried that Wyndham Earl's going to kill anyway. He's a crazy killer madman. Mm -hmm. He's just going to kill anyway. But Cooper says that Earl has a perverse sense of honor. Mm -hmm. uh, which side are you inclined to believe more right now? I believe more on Cooper because he literally knew Wyndham Earl. They played chess every day. They played chess apparently every day, hopefully just the physical and time and not the And they both love the same woman. They have a lot in common. I think we've made this very, very clear. They both have minds like diamonds. And uh, Truman's track record on things, on yes, is on not things. so good. On the general category of law enforcement. <laughs> On knowing people. <laughs> On just stuff. Stuff. Yeah, so uh, we get to see more of Wyndham Earl in this episode, although he's more of a background element in this one than in the previous. Uh, we see him oh, with Leo. Yep, yep, we see him with and Leo. And they're, they're having a good little outdoorsy sort of time with together. With his trucker cap. 
Yep, and Leo is using a knife to to make these little 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 shafts or little shafts, which later turn into the wooden arrows that Wyndham Earl uh, pricks oh, himself. Oh yes, with. because Wyndham Earl is so good trying to make sure help his good little pet Leo, his little lion, learn how to hunt. Because it be this little bit of survival in the woods is important. You see, hey, nature's cruel. Nature and <laughs> so, Leo, Leo, Leo doesn't know much about nature. Does he needs a practical lesson? He he look the way that Leo ends up like looking up at. Wyndham Earl is like a little child and very excited. Yes. Honestly, just like the facial acting from Leo alone, it has been just a treat this episode. Imagine like being Eric DeRay and like having such a prominent dialogue heavy character in like the first season. And then for season two being a consistent presence, but like your most memorable line is like, new shoes. And then just like mumbling. And then at this point now, where you've been reduced to this sort of weird servant child torture character. And he's making it work. I, Admittedly, he's he's making it work more than, like we both agree, more than he did at the beginning of the show. Yeah, I don't know if it was just certain types of stage direction or anything like that, but he definitely is a really good physical actor, I mm -hmm. find. So, yeah, kudos. Kudos? Kudos. Congratulations. <laughs> I know I know what a kudos is. But <laughs> oh, you're I have to make it, sure. You're saying it's totally different than I do. That's okay. <laughs> How I, do you say it? I say kudos. Yeah, kudos. You're putting... I'm Jaguar. Done. I'm done with this. <laughs> Jaguar. <laughs> All right. Uh, we, we get these arrows, and we don't know what they're going to do with that yet. We don't know where that's headed. We don't know much about this practical lesson, but we do know a little bit more about the outfit and getup that Wyndham Earl is wearing because we see Wyndham Earl in the background in a couple scenes throughout the episode. With a trucker cap. With the trucker cap. With the trucker cap. And he begins this gathering of angels, right? Where he's sending letters to our three potential queen candidates. Mm -hmm. And each of them has a portion of this letter. And we see the two of the three get their letter. We don't ever see Dawn actually get hers, I don't think, right? She just shows up at the She end. just shows up with the other remaining piece. And what's crazy is that all these notes are extremely suspicious. Like, you receive one-third of this cryptic poem, and, like, the words just sound like the ravings of a madman. Yeah. And you're told to show up at 9.30 alone at this, like, bar. Yeah. Like, and, and no one tells the police. Norma just freaking lets Shelly go. She, she's very passe about it. Like, it's clear that, like... Sounds intriguing, but dangerous. Yeah. Okay, have fun, Shelly. <laughs> have a good time. Here, I'm going to go visit Hank in prison. <laughs> All safe options. But no, it, it, it like, even, like, Shelly didn't really catch on that there was more to the message until they were around each other more with, like, torn papers and just, like, different words. I don't it's know. Just, do, when you think of the situation, do you believe that all three of them would have gone without, like, telling anyone or bringing anyone else? Audrey? Like, yes. Audrey, Because yes. Audrey, literally, we've seen. Okay, you don't think she's gotten any better with mm -hmm. that? Yes. Okay, Don I'm, I'm willing to agree with you. Donna has done risky things herself and probably i don't know if she has much motivation but she's definitely had a push to curiosity when it happens to harold shelly though what does what what about shelly's personality shows that yeah you know what i'm willing to take this leap well i also going back to donna for just a moment though donna was involved in in those things because of laura and because of james yeah when she receives a random note what would well, be her motivation here well as we'll discuss later about like james 
going right, off somewhere. Right. Like she needs some t- things to take up time now. If she needs you a new hobby. You know when you're lonely and your 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 boyfriend, <laughs> love interest, friend, guy leaves, and you're like, hey, I really hope someone sends me a really creepy note. So I have a plan for tonight. <laughs> I mean, she has like you have to fill up time. Like I've had times where I have to fill up time. If someone gave me a special little note saying like, hey, yes, hello, please come over here, please desperately, you're an angel. Uh, I know that I would be intrigued enough. I, I wear- would stay away from wherever this is, but okay. Well, clearly we know who'd have the better night. Uh, I don't know about that, actually. <laughs> so they all show up, and Wyndham rolls in the way background looking like a real creep just staring them With down. With his trucker cap. With his trucker cap. And they combine um, Donna, Shelley, and Audrey, combine their letters to form uh, the poem Love's Philosophy by Percy Bysshe Shelley. I have the full poem here if you'd like me to read it. I didn't know it was by someone, so yeah. excellent. So we got the second stanza in the letter, The first stanza was not part of the letter, so I'm going to slowly read both stanzas here for us. The fountains mingle with the river, and the rivers with the ocean. The winds of heaven mix forever with a sweet emotion. Nothing in the world is single. All things by a law divine in one spirit meet and mingle. Why not I with thine? See the mountains kiss high heaven, and the waves clasp one another. No sister flower will be forgiven, if it disdained its brother, and the sunlight clasps the earth, and the moonbeams kiss the sea, what is all this sweet work worth if thou kiss not me? That was by Percy Bysshe Shelley. Yeah, um, this is definitely a way to, I don't know, I, I don't know what this would necessarily accomplish, and we don't really see the conclusion of that as they're all hanging out at that little bar all together. So if you'll indulge me a little bit, I like romantic poets. Uh, the romantic era of poetry, like the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Shelley's, Shelley's interesting. Uh, happened to like his wife's writing a little bit more because she wrote Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Mary Shelley. But, but this is a good poem. And so the whole idea here, right, is that nature has a sense of unity and mixing, right? That nature's always intermingling and that that's the natural way. And the speaker here arguing to this other person that they should do the same that people in general should do the same, but also has a bit of a romantic in the lowercase r sense of like lovey-dovey sort of invitation, right? Um, An invitation to love, if you will. You know, the mountains kiss heaven, the waves clasp one another, right? And then it says, you know, no sister flower be forgiven if it disdained its brother, which is a little bit creepy, honestly, from Percy Shelley's part. Like, hey, ladies, I'm going to look down on you if you don't spread some love. Yeah. A little little creepy, a little creepy, but he says it very beautifully, at least. Um, And then the sunlight clasps the earth, the moonbeams kiss the sea. What is all this sweet work worth if thou kiss not me? So Wyndham Earl, you know, he's a working man, mm -hmm. and he's waiting for a kiss from his queen, right? Sure. I'm sorry, but my main concern is that if you dip a rose in grease, it does not, like, somehow improve the grease. Continue. What more is there to continue? This man is not only incredibly abusive, as we've seen before, not only is that line you have been given a little bit concerning, but the way that he even kind of, like, looks upon them in the bar just just makes me want to, like, take, like, the image through, like, a Photoshop and just separate them. A good, like, few thousand <laughs> pixels. <laughs> it is It is an interesting choice. I mean, the most obvious thing to me is that he chose a poet with the last name Shelley. That, to me, is immediately suspicious when one of the three people you're targeting is named Shelley. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, was Johnson taken like, and what about Horn? How many romantic authors? Yeah, are known no, by nothing Horn? from those. I mean, nothing from those that I can think of. Johnson is such a famous last name that yeah, there are poets with that last mm-hmm. name. We know a little bit about Wyndham Earl. He does seem to be in touch with nature. We do see him having this sort of emphasis on sort of a, a natural outdoorsy sort of life and a sort of mysticism almost with that, mm-hmm. which I think fits the the capital R romantic <laughs> vibes of this poem. Yeah. But it is curious, and I guess something we need to see moving forward and exactly what's going on here mm-hmm. and, and why that poem. I don't know. How would you feel if you're one of these three girls and you go there and you put these together and that's what you get? I suppose... It- <sighs> I would feel less flattered because as far as it goes, I don't want an impromptu bachelor uh, situation going (laughs) on. Uh, I do not want to be chosen amongst other contestants. I would like to be the apple of Wyndham Earl's eye. I think it'd be really funny if there had been a fourth person there who mm-hmm. just had like the periods of the punctuation at the end of the (laughs) piece of paper. It's someone we'd never met before because it's just kind of convenient that the three you know, queen characters are the ones we've met. Imagine if it was just some random other girl who just like lives in the town was just included in this. I think it would be better like the rest, like we had a whole different poem. So there's just like a whole group of people that have like the completed works of this like author Mm -hmm. all inside the roadhouse at once. I, yeah, I kind of wish that, I know she's too young, probably going to the bar, but we got Donna's little sister from the pilot was reciting poetry no, at the beginning. No, <laughs> no, no, Hey, I'm not saying she needed to be there to receive it, but I wish she would have brought involved in this, you know? Let let the people who are at least, we know at the legal point of like <laughs> no, 18, no, I mean, like, be I, the ones that be potential no, queens. Because there's no the, like other context no, for this. Professor, Someone needs to be the queen. No, I just mean that I want them to take the poem to her, right? So she can look at the poem and be like oh yes percy shelley and then say some things because we haven't seen her in she so doesn't long. exist anymore you have to just accept this i will never accept it she is gone just like ben's wife they are no longer here they should form their own tag team no okay well you know who's no longer a tag team together nadine um, and ed bless their hearts how? Like because nadine nadine comes home early from school ed's worried you know are you okay are you feeling poorly and nadine says they need to talk she and Mike are in love. And Nadine's clear she doesn't want to hurt Ed. She wouldn't want to hurt Ed for anything in the world. But while on the wrestling trip, Nadine and Mike had the most magical night together. All night. And as, as Nadine says, Eddie, we have to call a spade a spade. We're breaking up. Get your live reaction, Professor! It's, it's unfortunate that the only like physical scenes we've seen with Snake were where... Nadine was unnecessarily pushy. Mm -hmm. We have to just either believe that she's telling the truth and that she actually is understanding the truth correctly, or this is a, like an unreliable narrator and it's not at all mutual. We don't know. I'm frightened for snake's behalf. Um, if you had to guess, what do you think? Do you think it's like actually happening or is it just Nadine thinking it's happening? I am. I'll be honest, Cleo, I'm my brain is like trying not to think of it. It is actively think trying to be a censor. So I'm hoping uh, my mind won't allow me. Let I, up. <laughs> I don't want to let him unless it's consensual. So my uh, my mind in my bed in my house. <laughs> so I hope in their bed in their house. Which, by the way, they were on a trip with school. Aren't we usually like people like room together? Like from like I the don't same know. like how is like the rooming situation going? Do you want to know? Do you want to know the details of what happened that night I, all night? The only detail that I truly care about with the other ones, it's just more so of a politeness concern. But oh, whether yeah. or not 
snake is okay. Well, maybe find out. Maybe we won't. <laughs> um, Which, by the way, it seems that Nadine is taking up more sports. So I hope that whoever she is facing in this trial, she'll be able to come up with first place. Yeah. And, Not in uh, that form of wrestling, but in the school form of wrestling. So, so Nadine has unintentionally then initiated the divorce, right? Or at least a separation. She says she's breaking up. I don't know how that's going to work, like, because they're fully married. Right. So it's just like, here you go, Nadine. Here's the breakup papers. papers. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> Nadine might actually go for it, though. Um, what do you think of that in terms of the narrative? Because Ed's kind of like wide-eyed at the moment because he, it's like shocking, but it also is kind of liberating. Like, this is his excuse to leave. Mm-hmm. He's been kind of looking for a reason to leave for forever, but he's always felt too bad for Nadine. Now he's being handed on a silver platter like your get-out-of-jail-free card. I deeply... But it's get-out-of-marriage-free card. I deeply appreciate Nadine's sort of overall reaction, wanting to make sure that Ed is just generally happy. She mm-hmm. does not want to hurt him, but she also recognizes what she thinks is best for her. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, no, Ed's kind of shocked in the moment, maybe even a little hurt, and... Uh, Do you think Ed does the right thing by taking her up on this and then going to normal right away and proposing? It is really... Because Ed just rolls with it. Ed does roll with it. Same Uh, don't. We don't know if Nadine will have... Well, I don't know if Nadine will have a Benjamin Horn moment where her reality comes crashing down. Mm -hmm. I hope that everything goes well with Snake then, Mm -hmm. uh, if consensual. (laughs) <laughs> just big stamp every time I mention no, we, those you and two. I have both made this point in previous episodes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. No, overall, as long as all parties are happy, I'm happy. Um, okay. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So we have after Wyndham Earl leaves the love letter for Shelly, we're at the Double R Diner. And um, before Ed can come in to propose, Norma's on the phone. And she's on the phone with her sister named Annie, a character we've never heard of prior. Oh, right. you act surprised, but this was in the episode. Uh, yeah, no, I, I completely overlooked it. Nope, she's on the phone with someone named Annie, who's her sister. Well, is she okay? And, well, we're about is to she find okay, out. okay, Annie? And we're going to find out, right? We're going to find out how Annie is, mm-hmm. because apparently she's crying on the phone. Oh, she's not okay, Annie. She's not okay. You know, Norma's reassuring her that they got plenty of room and says that she'll be waiting at the next bus and they'll meet together there. Fantastic, so, because Norma might be more experienced you know, being potentially hit and struck by a smooth criminal. Very much so. Mm. I mean, Hank. Yep, is that, he smooth? Hank. Well, he's kind of a smooth criminal. He is a, he's he a, smooth, is a smooth man. He is a criminal he, he's man. He's a smooth criminal. And it looks like he is whatever he is. I'm also very proud of you for knowing a song. Knowing a song that people know. Wait, I know a song? <laughs> so anyway, we got another character maybe on the way. With Annie? Someone coming to Twin Peaks? Because we don't have enough characters in Twin Peaks. Not enough. We need more. I like to believe that some of the ones that we don't see are actually just being swallowed by the town. Like, (laughs) like when you say that Donna's sister and you say that Audrey's mom are literally... No, they're actually gone. We never get to see the pit in the middle of Twin Peaks where all the necessary characters are shoved into. There's just a wormhole in the middle of town. To appease the Twin Peaks. And, uh, And Annie apparently is leaving her convent. So there's a conversation very briefly between Shelley and Norm about this. Where um, Norma says these cryptic words. She says, I always used to think that Annie was from another place in time. I guess a convent's been good for her in a way. It's hard to imagine her out in the world. So oh, no. all we know about Annie is former convent, like none, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's having none of that anymore. So she leaves the convent and she's coming to Twin Peaks and she's crying and she's a weirdo. So Like enough is- of a weirdo that she feels out of place. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know. I feel like for you, that should be red flags, but 
Maybe not. It'll be okay. It'll be all right. She she no no conspiracies at all. Like I'm actually kind of surprised you didn't latch onto the anything. I, I feel was, like this is the kind of thing that would be a red alarm for you. Usually, yes, but at the same time, I was more focused on the Wyndham Earl uh, trucker hat at the time. Okay, spill the beans on this. What's up with the trucker Not hat thing? Not yet. Not yet? Not yet. Okay, well, Ed comes in. We already mentioned this before, but he's he's very confident. He grabs Norma. You know, you deserve to be happy. It's our turn, baby. I don't know why he's Elvis all of a sudden, but then they smooch, and then Shelly has an adorable reaction as she, like, leaves it. the scene. Huge fan of Shelly. Always have been. Mm. Understated character performance, as always. Mm -hmm. um, so much with the, the facial reaction and body language. It's great. Absolutely, and just, like, the hang-off from, like, the walking around yeah. the corner. It's, well, mm. you could tell that she really looks up to Norma and, and cares about her as an important figure in her life. Yeah. So... Seeing Norma finally get a chance at that happiness is obviously a big deal to her, but she knows she needs to get out of Dodge right there. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of getting out of Dodge, Hank. Uh, Hank uh, is, dun, 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 seems dun. to be uh, getting out of everyone's lives right now. Uh, he goes to the sheriff's office and his crutches, and uh, you know he talks to Harry, and Harry just seems in a bad mood. He says, Harry, you know, it seems like you woke up, woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And... Um, at which point Harry's like, we're charging you with the attempted murder of Leo Johnson. And, and he's like, no, 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 Harry, you're sounding pretty serious. Well, his about first this. word was ouch, which ouch. I really enjoy. Ouch. Like that hurt. Like that's a mild sting, right? <laughs> that's, that's a little insulting, Harry. Come on, we go way back. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you're right. He's like, Harry, you obviously seem serious about this. So I'm going to propose a trade. How about information leading to the arrest and conviction of Andrew Packard's murderer? Hank Jennings, witness for the prosecution. Mm -hmm. And Truman's like, no. How rude, right? <laughs> give, I, give Hank I, a chance. Were they like friends in high school? Come on. Yeah, they were friends, but the war is the key. Where it's like, hey, come on. like hmm. Maybe like, if Hank would have been the one to throw that axe down the stairs, <laughs> he and rescued them, maybe there'd be a little bit more uh, grease on that hand <laughs> for the deal. <laughs> Regardless. Greasy palms, you know. I'm aware. <laughs> Uh, greasy palms, greasy roses, but uh -huh. no, he, he goes on. It's like, wow, really? Like you really just want me that badly? Like mm -hmm. instead of like this and it's like, yeah. Well, he's like, your constituents won't like that. Yeah. Because you care more about the attempted murder of Leo Johnson, a convict, a felon than the actual murder of Andrew Packard. And, you know, plus, people won't like it when they learn you've been sleeping with the killer. Yeah, I love, though, that he's, like, willing to trade information, but the very next line where he, like, realizes yeah. that, yeah, no, it won't, uh, work. it won't work. It's like, okay, well, here's the information anyway. Well, he's going to twist the knife. I feel like it's less of a, it's less of an advantage in his, because it's almost like he knows he's going away. Might as well screw over both of them. Might as well make, like, get a little bit of a dig at Harry and get to see that reaction, that immediate sense of gratification, 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 knowing that he, like, hurt him. But then also, I don't think he uh, Excellent. he has any loyalty to Josie. Yeah, I, I think that there might have been in the moment need for gratification because it's not going to work with him in the long run. I mean, like he the second that he just gets a chance to try to weasel his way out of it after that scene, he still like tries to push that attempt like he has to find a way out. Well, and he's not going to have good success for like five minutes because Hawk like trips him in the sheriff's office, which I don't know. I know you like Hawk and all, but. D that that doesn't sit well with me. Why? Hawk literally tripped the man on crutches forward into the desk and was like, oh, gee, I'm so sorry about it. I don't know. It feels a little bit out of Hawk's jurisdiction to go and roughhouse the, the person like that. Oh, his foot Because, I mean, even though the this situation is a little bit different and, and definitely Hank is lying about getting hit by a bus in a tree, mm -hmm. he is still, like, actually injured. Yes. And, like, Hawk just 
trip this injured man on crutches in the police office behind closed doors yeah, because he was slipped. being rude to his buddy. Is his foot slipped? No, that's called that's called uh, not appropriate behavior for a police officer. And uh, Hank is the man of non appropriate behavior in general. That doesn't make it okay. What kind of law and order do you prefer, Professor? Uh, I prefer law and disorder, personally. Okay, well, I don't know what that puts you on the D&D alignment chart, but... Uh, <laughs> chaotic good. Chaotic good? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what I'm getting at, though, is that it felt a little bit wrong for Hawk. Like, it feels like there's a there's an unspoken alliance with Hawk and Truman that goes beyond the professional to the bookhouse boy's sense of loyalty, where it's almost an us versus them, and at the moment that Hawk notices Hank pushing on Harry... He pushes back. Yeah, the loyalty to the Bookhouse Boys is important in their group to the point that it might even overshadow some of their usual social responsibilities. It, it, it's almost like the Bookhouse plotline should have been used more in season two, and that's a criticism of the season. Or, in the end, he did abandon the Bookhouse Boys and betrayed the Bookhouse Boys, so that that was just a little bit of an it, extra. It's almost like this is a thing they could have developed more with, yeah. with, uh, with Hank. Instead of... Having Hank be this neutered, disgusting, sad excuse you don't character. Need to, you don't need to develop with words. You can develop with actions. And that action was a sweeping foot to the crutch. Not to the crotch. The crutch. the crutch. Which is different than the neutering I was referring to. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, we, like you were foreshadowing, we do get um, Hank in the slammer. Norma comes in, asks for the divorce. Hank immediately tries to smooth talk her. He says he's going to go into therapy. He doesn't want to be like this anymore. And in case the audience was even slightly convinced that Hank might be genuine this time, we see that drop. Um, as Norma's talking about she has to get on with her life, he says, I know. And he's like grabbing her hair and her collar kind of as he's sort of changing his tone a little bit. He knows that she has to move on, but he just wants her to do one last favor for him. Just, one just more. testify just on my behalf. Save my life. She's like, no. It's like, oh, is it Ed? Is that who you're running to? Then here's the deal. You give me my alibi, I give you your divorce. And then she's like, no. And like, I, like it's, it's funny because it almost just like mirrors between her yeah. and Truman. It's like, yeah, yeah, please, please, please. No. Well, how about this? No. Well, how about this? No. And, and Hank, how about this? Hank's not no. winning anymore. He, he is. When has he? Season when one. has Season he? Season one. He, he made advances, I'll give him. He'll make threats, but like there hasn't been like a firm victory for Hank. He came to town. And he's hardly delivered. Yeah. I do think he delivers one of the best lines in his character history uh, in this prison moment. I'm glad that he had a best line by default, like having a tier of lines out of his lineage. Because when he knows he's not getting what he wants, he drops the facade and he just says, you're his whore, Norma. And Norma delivers one of the best comebacks. Yep. No, much better. And she says, I'd rather be his whore than your wife. Boom. Mic drop. Yep. Bam. Goodbye. And, and and Hank, none too happy about it, is screaming after her as she leaves. Yeah. I'm not even really going to say poor Hank anymore. It's it's just, like, sad, but you just kind of, like, have to watch the sadness and just nod your head mm -hmm. slightly. Just acknowledging it exists, but not really giving mm -hmm. much foot. I do think it's a well-done scene. It is. I think it's interesting to compare it to the scenes we get, like with Ben and Catherine at the present cell much earlier. Yeah. The whole let's have no more lies between us line is uttered here, mm -hmm. which gets a, almost like, again, an interesting parallel to the Catherine and Ben lines we've had before. Yes. As well as there's another time in this episode with Josie, we get that whole thing of let's have no more lies between us. But this time later, it's with Josie and Andrew, I believe, later in the episode. Yeah. Speaking of power couples, James and Donna. By what power? 
By uh, what authority do you want power, to come forward with that uh, word? Uh, Runtime. They, they've been together a long time in this show. Yep, so it's just them alone on the Just hill. you, plural. Just you, the plural. And they, uh, they have a picnic. Which, I mean, I do enjoy the continuity here because we get uh, James in, like, he was in the pilot. He says to Donna, like, lovely day for a picnic. He mm-hmm. says it in a really weird way in the pilot. So it's good to know they finally go on that picnic again. Yeah, no, it's a lovely day at the same day, three weeks later, or however time passes. And uh, Donna says that she wanted them to go to a place they'd never been before. And they go and they have their picnic. And before they can really dine uh, into the food or dine upon each other, uh, James says that he talked to the police and, uh, they asked him a million questions he didn't understand, but the ones he did understand, he must've given them good enough answers because they feel satisfied with what's going on. Mm-hmm. He knows that Evelyn is going to stand trial and that James is going to be a witness for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, James, you know, goes on to say that he wouldn't blame Donna if she hated him. Uh, but Donna says that she knows what James was feeling and that she was feeling it too, that Evelyn took advantage of that feeling. Yeah, the, she just shifts all the blame onto Evelyn, really. Yeah, it's 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 definitely an interesting sort of dynamic that they're talking through. It is a, a conversation. I what do you think? That. Do you do you buy into Donna's reasoning here that you know James didn't really do anything wrong? They were both feeling this certain way, and Evelyn took advantage of that feeling. And now that Evelyn's out of the picture, James can move on. I feel that there is at least some truth to it. I do feel that there is like a, something Evelyn saw that she could handle, but also I manhandle. do manhandle. Yep, manhandle. There's just this air between their conversation that feels like level of like trying to direct mm-hmm. the conversation, almost like I expect them to kind of like look at the camera a few times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, James says, you know, after he talks about the Evelyn stuff, he says, you know, if we could just start over. And Donna just says, please come home with me. Like, which I can't. James says he can't. He, it's not, he can't do it yet. Nope, he's got to do his own journey. And on one hand, it's nice that he acknowledges something that's important to him. But on the other hand, I'm just imagining he's just going to go another day forward and he's going to find Evelyn number two. <laughs> and I wonder, You don't think he's learned his lesson? What lesson? Exactly. Uh, Donna pivots immediately and says, you're right. You should go. Can't worry about me anymore. I've been a part of all the horrible things that happened. I want to be part of something good now. James, go. Take all the time you need. Uh, James says, I love you. And Donna doesn't reply yes or no. She just says she's going to miss him like crazy. I feel, and there's like an illusion for like them, him to come back and just like wanting him right. to come back. That, I don't know. I kind of, I was really hoping that this conversation would just lead to them taking on their own paths. I, I really think that's kind of what's being hinted at. It's hinted at, but at the same time, I'm I fear that they'll be together once again. Okay. I fear that you fear it because you hate watching them together. I hate watching them together, and they're also one. not very good for each other. That is why I hate watching them together. Yes, you. There we go, point by point. I think that it's best for them to acknowledge what has happened, know their pain speak about it, but yet move on. Wherever the heck that's... And I, of course, cannot spoil for you whether or not they end up together again later. I have a strong feeling they will, and that's my fear. But I do enjoy this scene, Mm -hmm. and I do enjoy the writing of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, in my opinion, one of the better interactions between the two in the series. Yeah. And uh, there's, you know, toward the end of it, we have Donna saying, you'll go away, and you'll come back with great stories, and none of them are going to be about Laura 
or Maddie or she, Evelyn, there, there and I'll is, be here. There it is. There it is. You'll come back and you'll give me these stories. It's go also, away, James. Go away. I, also, I enjoyed you towards the end, but go away. I think it's interesting how much Donna pivots the blame on women, even herself. Like, all of James's life, he has all this misfortune with Laura, Maddie, Evelyn, and Donna says that she's been part of it, too. She just links all the women in James's life to his misery, and I get why she does it, but it ignores James's involvement in everything with this. Yeah, I think that James needs some criticism, too. I think that there is and he won't get some it from of his, Donna. like, emotional push that kind of has to be addressed. You know, his poor family life um, especially addressed, and his overall social interactions it's it's almost it's also kind of sad because there's a lot of dissonance whenever it comes towards like someone of a feminine persuasion Mm -hmm. coming around and basically causing some issues like let's just face it if james did come back and the first second he saw like Dwayne's wife Mm -hmm. lana or dougie's wife both work well dougie's dougie's former wife dougie has been dead now so Either way, let's face it, there will be an interaction. There will yeah. a Maddie-level interaction there. I don't know about Maddie levels on the radar, but it'd be an interaction for sure. I um, It's tough because part of me thinks, you know, when James went and tied out Wally's and to Evelyn on his biker journey, he was running away. Mm-hmm. He was running away from his problems. Mm-hmm. And part of me wants to jump in to say that Narratively speaking, that was a step back for his character Mm -hmm. in the sense that instead of facing his problems head on, he just runs from them and he's doing it again. Now he, he, he clearly does feel a strong emotion toward Donna, whether you would want to call it love or whatever you want to call it, but there is a strong sense of emotion, but James doesn't know how to face it. He keeps saying he'll do it later. He's, he's just like pushing that back. And part of me wants to say, again, he's running from his problems but the flip side of it, though, is what is there for Twin Peaks for him? Why should he stay? I mean, I guess you could say he can go back to Ed and Nadine as kind of parent figures, but they don't even seem to want him around that much. And all there really is for him left in Twin Peaks is Donna. I, it, I, I feel for James in that way, and I do think that there's other things out there for him. I still think that his emotions have to be addressed. Like, not, like, just at any time. Just indefinitely, Mm. they need to be addressed. But... By the story? Or by him as a character? By him as a character. Okay. Okay. He has to acknowledge his emotions beyond, I feel so in love, but... He's a very, very simple type of person who lacks a lot of Mm self-awareness. And hopefully he'll find that as he drives west into the ocean. (laughs) <laughs> yes amen uh you know who might be driving west into the ocean next randy because randy it looks like his job's at stake because audrey in a case of fierce nepotism seems to be taking over the concierge desk at the grand like is she jumping the in for the shift or is like he, he no longer has the concierge position i don't know he seemed pretty upset about audrey taking the concierge desk i, I think that he doesn't think audrey can handle it but you know what it's completely fair because Audrey she at the beginning one of the series. Customer, the first customer she has is also John Justice Wheeler. We'll talk about how that goes. Continue. Yeah, yeah but like any sort of scenes that we saw at the beginning was like Audrey being bored and just like sitting around like poking holes people, in the styrofoam poking, cups and yep. leaking all the paperwork. Yeah, if you see like someone with that sort of acumen and being told like, yeah, you're going to handle my job. It's like, I work hard on this position. 
And like, we know Audrey has grown. She actually has. But uh, Randy doesn't know that. Randy is like, it's been three weeks. You are not a new person. It's been three weeks, one year, somewhere in between there. (laughs) It's been. You know what? Uh, Honestly, I commend Randy, like even just sort of standing up to Audrey, Mm -hmm. the daughter of the person who runs the whole entire place and taking such pride in his position. So, you know, good on you, Randy. I I appreciate you. Yes, and even though he might be driving west into the ocean for all we know. <laughs> or that spot where the characters go in Twin Peaks and they're no longer being utilized. The hole in the middle the of Twin hole. Peaks. Uh, someone who just emerged from the hole is Billy Zane. Wait, the what? The actor for John Justice Wheeler. Why did he come out of the hole? I don't know. I assume his jet no, he plane... No, he has been on the level. He, like... I assume his jet plane rose out of the hole. <laughs> his private jet that he owns. I mean, we do get later on uh, the idea with Ben that he sure. was someone who was down mm-hmm. and then was brought up. He seems pretty on the level and keeps like keeping things on the level mm-hmm. and them rise up. He has actually a rather fun conversation with Audrey. And at first it seems like there might be a little bit of like a little spark there, at least sure. with him towards her. There's also a little bit of twang in his soundtrack. A little twang. They have that like very like old, old timey westerny twang soundtrack mm-hmm. of the character. Uh, so Billy Zane, the actor, he's most known for the movie Titanic. He plays the stuck up, like rich guy who is just oftentimes hated and seems obnoxious. But professor, you and I may know him from the kingdom hearts series. What? Uh, he was the voice of Ansem, Seeker of Darkness, in the first Kingdom Hearts. So the guy from Titanic, uh, which yeah. I've not seen Titanic, yeah. but just like trying to imagine, is there like a, a like a dark scene inside of Titanic where no, like the evil businessman rises above the dining chairs? No, but I I'll, I'm just gonna get on my soapbox here and say that uh, Billy Zane killed it in Kingdom Hearts for voice acting. Kingdom Hearts 1 has a lot of great voice acting, like Lance Bass did Sephiroth, that was an interesting choice, and it was just overall good casting for the voice actors, but like Billy Zane brought so much to a character that really didn't have much dialogue, but yeah, so my first exposure, and I think probably your first exposure, unless you saw Titanic first, I did it, not. Is, is, is this character... This, uh, this character who embodies darkness of your childhood memories being torn away mm. and supreme evil. <laughs> so that's John Justice Wheeler in a nutshell, right? Um, I don't think we've cracked the nut whatsoever because there's more to say about John Justice Wheeler. I like how Audrey's first customer after Randy leaves, she's incredibly rude and aloof with him and then just starts kind of being almost flirty. Mm-hmm. Like great, great customer service there. Randy would have done much better. Randy would have done much, much better. Uh, and then... To make matters weirder, though, uh, John Justice Wheeler kind of rolls with it. After flying in from his private jet, he has that conversation where he just randomly says, oh, he's about to leave, but he says, I have a picture of you. It's unbelievably cute. Just, like, talking about this photo he has of when she was, like, Heidi. Uh, from something. And how or... unforgettable. If he closes his eyes, he can almost picture it. Yeah, it is something that I was just trying to gauge, like, how old he was or how he even, like, sure. got this picture. Thankfully, we do hear that, like, there is some connection with Benjamin Horn. So, at least that makes it maybe mildly better. Yeah, and, but, and, and moving ahead to that scene, then. Uh, who's Heidi, by the way? And Well, we have a Heidi in Twin Peaks. We haven't seen her since the pilot. Okay. There so- was a giggling waitress at the Double R the German giggling waitress named Heidi, but she doesn't appear. She doesn't appear. Yeah, I don't sense. think that Audrey dressed up as like that specific Heidi. No, I think it's just a Heidi, like a very general. Like, it probably was like some fairy tale play or something, and they just took like a Swiss character. Very likely, but also, can we appreciate the idea that this man has his own jet? 
but he also tells Audrey, like, she's like, okay, uh, what was your flight number? He's like, nah, you'll find the jet. It's like, what? <laughs> Is she gonna walk out and there's the jet? Is I What's our so. instructions while we go? Will his face be on the side of it? <laughs> How do we locate the justice jet? Well, there's no other jets there. It'll the, be the one jet. The one singular yeah. jet in a place with other flights. Like, again, the yeah, press was at the hotel. Flight. I oh, don't know where he where landed Where would he park thing. it? Like, we've I have seen no the idea, but edge it's... of the waterfall. Is it just, like, parked know. up front? It's, I mean, There's maybe too I, many maybe questions I, I have know. of the Justice Jet, well, Khalil, that you need to find the answers to. Thankfully, we have no more questions for Ben because he has turned a new leaf and we have complete trust in him. Quote, 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 quote. So he is wearing a tracksuit of purple origins. <laughs> the, the origins of the purple. And he's the beginning of purple. He's eating celery. And uh, he embraces John Justice Wheeler. Oh, by the way, he prefers to be called Jack. I'm going to continue to call him John Justice Wheeler every and I'm gonna, single time. I'm going to call him Jack because that's, that's what he wants. He's I don't prefer. care what go he wants. Go with his consent. Like, I, this is what he wa- wishes for in consent. Do not go by his too bad. name that he doesn't like. I'm calling him John like. Justice Wheeler. And John Justice Wheeler introduces uh, is introduced to the group. Ben talks about him. Ben says that John Justice Wheeler used to be in construction. Uh, there we go. Boom. We got it. We got it. We got it. We got are it? finally here. We can go to the trucker hat. So here's uh-huh. the thing. Here's the thing. Khalil, I've been, I've been sitting on this. I've been sitting on this for a while. You've been and sitting I got, on this? Like for what, what reason, what reason would like Wyndham Earl have his specific hat? Okay. He has a specific hat on and you will know what it says. It's a C-DM Courtright Diesel and Machines. Now, when I search through uh, the Google area, there actually is an official business that has exactly that. And it is for a construction equipment manufacturing company that is in Tacoma, Washington, very far from Twin Peaks, supposedly. And so we can realize that a construction company hat with this now new character who works through construction or has in the past. What do we have there, Khalil? What do we have? An extremely tenuous connection? Yes, correct. Thank you. <laughs> There's nothing else There's I nothing have. here, yeah. But I'm very curious on his uh, appearance and potentially a potential pawn. Well. Potentially. In the words of the Metal Gear Solid franchise, Jack's back, baby. He just got here. Yeah, but he's he was formerly there as a child or young person. Oh, so he was. Well, we know that... Ben knew him from his construction days, right? Yeah, that he but we don't know where up. he constructed, and I that could have been, Maybe been in right. Tacoma, Washington. Okay. He he can be traveled enough. Well, he probably at some point was in Twin Peaks for the Great Northern, because see Heidi. Uh, all I'm saying is that maybe we have to keep an eye out on construction, if you know what I mean. Wink, wink. Anyway, he embraces his former mentor figure almost. Yeah. And then uh, he's asked, do you remember Jerry? And he's like, Jerry. And he like laughs and then they have a good time, those two. Uh-huh, good old Jerry. And then uh, Bob Briggs is introduced as the executive assistant. Not just assistant, executive assistant. Bob to Briggs. To make it feel much better. Good old Bobbert Briggs. I, I don't know. Would you prefer Bob Briggs or Robert Briggs? Bobbert. And then Ben has them take a seat and we get more information that Ben made an investment in John Justice Wheeler when he was younger and, quote, a pittance he made into an empire. And he believed in this boy back when he was just a local child pounding nails, and now he asks him to return the favor and believe in Ben. Yeah, isn't, isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? We have someone who's pretty good with finances popping right back into Twin Peaks. It's almost as if there's, like, an empty gap in uh, the life of Benjamin Horn now that he may have lost his financial advisor. But hey, why would perhaps, I know that? Perhaps so. With no mill and no ghostwood, Ben says that they are left no with the human spirit. Oh boy. 
And he says, what is the greatest gift one human can give to another? The future. And is he waving his <laughs> celery? As he waves his celery? Well, well, it, it, it's always hilarious, like, the word future just being the biggest buzzword of all. I give you the, future. the little pine weasel. Mm-hmm. Found only in our Tri-County area, it's nearly extinct. And Cherry just pipes in. They're incredible roasted. Uh, and Ben says that the Packard plans for Ghostwood development could wipe out the little pine weasel. I, I think that And Ben wants to save not only the pine weasel, but life as we know it. I fear, I fear Jerry's uh, potential ulterior motives, because maybe Jerry is the biggest problem, not it's Ghostwood. It's called uh, Save the Little Pine Weasel for Dessert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh no and ben says quote i want twin peaks to remain unspoiled in an era of vast environmental carnage well thank goodness this was made in the 90s and we no longer have that yep. we can't relate in the year 2021 to the idea of vast environmental carnage because we're all like on green energy our like biggest corporations are all very eco-conscious all the and, weasels are alive uh, yeah we don't see species dying Nope, nope. We don't see landscapes and environments being destroyed. At the bare minimum, those ben, weasels well, ben succeeded. should be alive. Ben should succeeded, be. right? Ben, ben won. Ben, yeah, in, in our world, at least. Big Ben gains. And uh, and Jerry immediately kind of catches wind of this idea, and he's like, oh. So we kind of frame it this way to block Catherine until we can get our hands on it. Very clever, Ben. Like, the way that Jerry addresses this is just very, it's too blatant to the point that I hope that there's never like a tap or anyone listening in through any door. Right. It's like a sense of like, okay, so we're just going to, uh, you know, give him an offer we can't, he can't refuse. Oh, so we're going to kill him. <laughs> Which, you know, it does add some credit to the idea that he's the one that put that really suspicious painting of like the one-eyed Jack looking <laughs> girl in the lobby area. I'm more convinced. Uh, but Ben doesn't really agree or disagree with what Jerry said. He just kind of ignores it. He just restates his like confidence and his direction. Audrey asks, like, okay, well, then what? And Ben says, then I'm considering a run for the Senate. Would you vote for Ben Horn? Um, I guess it depends on which Ben Horn. The environmentalist, the like neo-confederate, or the world's smarmiest businessman. You you have to have the or whole they all package the same in thing? one. They the are whole the package ben. in one? Yep. The I mean Benjamin Horn. I feel like generally our politicians are criminals so <laughs> oh no better the ones you make it obvious right <laughs> i mean we only know it's obvious because we are like watching it actually you know more important than ben's ethics though is his, is his failures his track record hasn't been great if he runs our country the way that he ran the great northern ugh, yeah. and his other business ventures he's probably not very good but he's trying to make a comeback so later we get a dinner scene at the great northern uh, where it's the group minus Jerry. We don't know where Jerry went. Maybe to go eat some more little pine weasels. Oh, um, it is mentioned inside of the little, like, oh. we're talking about the table, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it is mentioned because, like, Ben has to go away because the chef is trying to kill Jerry. Actively oh! trying to kill Jerry. I missed that part. Like, what? What was, what is Jerry doing in the kitchen area that would incur the wrath of a great and mighty chef? In fact, who knows? Maybe the concierge... Who is pretty blunt with Audrey? Randy? All, Randy, maybe that's like his other part of the job amongst there, hmm. and he is ready to let Jerry know how he feels about him. Randy is pretty handy. Randy is a handyman. Uh, and at this time, minus Jerry, Ben asks John Justice Wheeler to be his teacher. 
to write upon his virgin pages. At which point Audrey begins to have a suspicious cough where apparently the word virgin is a trigger word for her where she gets very uneasy with it being said. Hint, hint. Cough, cough. What? And then John Justice Wheeler, they talk about how his role, his job, is that he basically flips businesses, right? He's like a house flipper, but for businesses. Mm -hmm. He buys them, he improves them, he makes them more eco-friendly, and then he sells them for a little profit. Ben puts out his cigar as he's talking about the clean air that Wheeler often results in. And uh, after Ben leaves, you know, John Justice Wheeler asks uh, Audrey, you know, do you have an opinion of me? And Audrey says that she doesn't. But if she did, her opinion would be that the horns have taken care of themselves just fine in the past. And even though they've fallen on some hard times, they will continue to take care of themselves in the foreseeable future. He also made a comment before that. He was being a little bit insightful, saying, like, you don't really like me all that much, do you, Audrey? Mm -hmm. Which definitely is uh, a different dynamic than I expected. And it makes me more interested in how they're going to be playing off each other in the future. I don't know. What dynamic did you expect? Uh, I expected that this is a well-traveled man Mm -hmm. that even makes note that he's well-traveled enough, much younger than Cooper himself. Potentially. Yeah. We don't for sure know he looks younger. He definitely looks younger. He looks closer to Audrey's age than Cooper. He also's got a young face. Yeah, he does have a young face. So, yeah, no, I was half expecting that this might have been another potential interest in Audrey's field, if you will. Well, and considering her track record... She fell for Cooper largely because he was this mysterious, cool man who could take her on adventures that would leave Twin Peaks. And by and all now means. Now you've got the mysterious, cool man adventurer again. Yeah, and it seems that she's less than interested, maybe even a little insulted. Mm. Uh, she does at one point say that she's only 18, to which John Justice Wheeler replies, now what does that have to do with the price of eggs? <laughs> which is a good line. Mm-hmm. It's a good line. Uh, she says, I'll see you later, Jack. So she does call him by his preferred name. Mm-hmm. And then he says, I'll see you, Audrey. Ba ba bom ba bom So what are because- your thoughts overall on the new character, John Justice Wheeler, and the re- revised, newly reborn uh, Benjamin Horn? I think that uh, he's definitely going to be bringing conflict to Audrey in the future. At the very first time, look at me as you will, judge me as you will, but I was genuinely trying to make like connections with Wyndham Earl mm. before. especially construction? Because of construction head, and not to, to mention... Cons- construct some uh, similarities. And not to mention that Audrey is a potential candidate for a queen, mm-hmm. which I do feel strongly that that's where the queen angle is going to go to. Yep. It's definitely a intriguing dynamic that I wonder if there's even going to be a place fully for Jack. Mm-hmm. I mean, for so long, we've had Leland in Twin Peaks handling things on the financial side. How will this shift the larger dynamic? And not to mention... Will Jack also be going full horn, or is it just more so Benjamin Horn appealing more to Jack here Mm -hmm. to try to weigh things in each other's favors? It's it's going to need some more time to percolate, but... Do you like him? I find him intriguing. Cool. But nothing yet. Do you like him more or Randy more? I think I prefer the concierge man for mm. putting his foot down, but I'm also just intrigued on what trickled elements Jack will have. Not to mention, I am more fully confident I'm going to be seeing Jack again. Jack's back, baby. Uh, I was going to ask, uh, Ben, how what percent do you trust Benjamin Horn right now when he's the eco-environmentalist defender, 
who's trying to eat celery and put away his cigars. I think that he is someone who is very willing to do what he needs to do in order to get the upper hand. So he is living the lifestyle he feels will be best suited for his next step in the larger goal. After all, he's got to stop this Ghostwood project. So So is it a means to an end? It is a means towards his own end. Hmm. Do you prefer his ends or Catherine's ends? Um, that's a difficult question. Let's give Ghostwood to the people. How's Bane? Bane showed up. Bane showed up to give Ghostwood to the people. You know who else showed up at the breakfast table? Um, breakfast. <laughs> breakfast in the form of smiley face pancakes. Oh. And if you were suddenly presented out of the blue with smiley face pancakes, would you not also be freaked out? I, I would be freaked out with joy because in truth, that smiley face pancake, that connection that both Pete mm-hmm. Martell and Andrew Packard have, they are truly a dream team. It's it's a great way to do a lot of characterization in a very small moment. Mm-hmm. With hardly any lines, uh, especially with Catherine's face in which the dream team is truly a nightmare to her. Yeah, generally, Catherine's, like, selling it also helps, too, because she compares them to the Hardy Boys, and that implies a history that this is a normal way of behaving for them. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to buy it. Um, It seems natural enough. Pete is someone who ends up getting people to be jovial around him, so I can see it. Well, she compares Pete to a jester. Uh, Pete, Pete, what was the phrase? Like, Andrew was just like, oh, well, Pete is a prince, more like a court jester. Something like that. It was like a proper yeah. man or something, you know. A proper prince. And we get our mentionings of Ghostwood. So, you know, way back when we had that random sign in the double R that said, like, something about Ghostwood. Mm-hmm. Finally, we're getting more on Ghostwood. Yay. Right? It's, it's finally happening. Stop Ghostwood. No more Ghostwood. No more Ghostwood. And we have no clue on who is, like, really pushing the no more Ghostwood side. Right. Because um, it wasn't Ben yet. It was not Ben yet. I feel like maybe someone will come out of the goat... Uh, the Ghostwood, to mm-hmm. <laughs> help out Ben. Crawl under, to from under the floorboards. Yep. Um, and uh, we also see Josie come in and see Andrew Packard alive and just immediately start fainting. Yep, I would. Passed out. I would, too, if it was, like, the sense of, I just met the man that caused me to murder mm-hmm. my ex-husband, but also, hey, my ex-husband is still alive. Josie has gone through a lot. This is the recently. section I called in my notes, Josie has a rough day. Uh, so Josie's confirmed pretty much at this point, to have been the one to kill the Asian man with two exclamation marks, Jonathan, as well as the one who is being clearly linked to the attempted killing of Dale Cooper in season two. Yeah. Well, end of season one, I should say. Yes. Um, And I guess I kind of wanted to know at this venture, what do you think of Josie being the one to have pulled the trigger on Coop? It's a... It's a nice, I wouldn't necessarily call it a twist. They were sprinkling it in the past few episodes. I enjoy... The idea of someone so desperate to try to keep her secrets that she Mm -hmm. will try to bury the lead the best that she can. It does feel a little anticlimactic to me. Like I've, I've, you know, I've gotten used to it over time, but when I first found out about it, it it feels like it's delivered in a pretty like quick way. It's not really a big focus thing. Oh, there's no climax to it. For how big of a moment it was at the end of season one, like the, the who shot Cooper thing was a, you know, soap opera cliche ever since who shot Jr. Mm-hmm. You know, back in like the late, I think it was late eighties when that happened mm-hmm. um, on general hospital. Mm-hmm. So that sort of idea of, you know, who shot Cooper, it feels like a bigger question that was just kind of like, Oh yeah, it was Josie. She's <laughs> kind of like waved away. I, and, I wouldn't call it like a waved away quick, right. but it, it more so like a gentle way. It's like, well, it was Josie. And it's almost as if like you were getting eased into it, like a blanket. Yeah. I don't know. I have mixed feelings. I don't think it was the worst choice by any means. 
It, it, it makes sense. It, mm-hmm. it does make sense. At the time, though, I do wonder if they had thought it was Josie. Like, was it planned to be Josie? Because I feel like it wasn't. I, I, have, I feel like they had to come up with someone after the fact. I feel that it may have been planned for Josie, but they want to keep it ambiguous enough that if they had to change it, they could. Leaving an open end in the writing room being like, yeah, it's Josie. But if we could think yeah. of something better for later. Sure. Well, I also I also wonder how well you remember the pilot since you did watch that, you know, so long ago at this point. But the first words that Cooper ever had about Josie were uh, him like elbowing uh, Truman and being like, so who's the babe? Which is such a weird thing, like in context of what Cooper is now. Yeah. But like that was his first words about Josie was to call her a babe. Uh, it's weird. It is weird. Do you remember that part? No. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, no, it's almost as if, like, all the moments after with Cooper and all his lines afterwards, it just, like, drowned out a lot of, like, early Cooper. Yeah, I feel like we got to remember in the midst of everything else going on, we do need to go back to that international pilot at some point. Okay. Because I, I want to get your reactions to it now that you've seen the show and you can realize how off everything felt in the pilot, but then after, also see the international pilot ending. After we get, of course, to the very, very, very end yes. of this grand journey. Yeah, I would say we should do it either right before the finale or right after. Right after. One of the two. Right after or maybe after. Maybe even, even after, with Fire Walk after. With Me. I yeah. don't know. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Josie. <laughs> so Cooper uh, confronts Josie, has a conversation with her uh, that uh, shortly after Catherine walks in. And Catherine and Pete in general in this episode are playing the long con and manipulating a few different pieces. Right? Josie's one of them. Harry Truman's another one of those. Eckert's one of them. And um, to his, to their credit, they're doing a pretty good job of maneuvering said pieces. Uh, <laughs> Eckert uh, has insisted on seeing Josie alone at that night. Um, and Josie, in the meantime, is like holding her head. She says she's not feeling well. As Catherine just like brings up, you know, Eckert, you know, Eckert might feel betrayed when he realizes that Andrew's still alive. And Catherine just kind of coyly reveals the location of a gun mm-hmm. just to kind of like plant the seed of the gun there for Josie. What did you think overall of like the Cooper conversation as well as what Catherine did with the gun with Josie? As far as the, the whole entire planning stage of all this, mm-hmm. it, it, it's curious, especially with how we see everything end. But right. <laughs> I'm happy to see how Catherine is being utilized at this time on her just motives of manipulation. Mm-hmm. And all the way even to the end when like, when Truman actually stops by mm-hmm. and Catherine like gets Pete to go to the door, despite the fact that he's getting his sweet tackles ready, he almost like pities the man. Mm-hmm. It's there, there's a dynamic with Catherine that gets just all the sweeter as we keep going more and more into the grand plan of the Packards. Sweeter is in tastier for the audience, not sweeter as in like, aww. Yes. Yes. That's what I meant. Well, I'm just clarifying. Yes. For myself, as much as for the listener, <laughs> the single listener, you, the one Me. listening, it's for you. Everything's Just for you. you. Um, Forever. I, I don't have much to say on it, but I also do want to make note of uh, the conversation between Andrew and Josie that happens. Oh, where... he gets some bubbly, like and some nice champagne, which, by the way, one thing that bothers mm-hmm. me from the scene is that he gets the bubbly. He sits down. He may have gotten a sip at one scene or another, but I am fully distracted and my memories have been purged of it because guess what? He leaves almost all of it behind. He is so wasteful with champagne. And honestly, Packard, that is a point away from you. 
Or maybe he didn't want to drink it. Why, why would you get bubbly ready if you, you don't want to drink it? Because it's all manipulation and coercion tactics. It is. Um, he wants to give the illusion of wanting to drink. At the very least, take the champagne with him well, and don't leave it on the counter. He can just take it along. Say, here you go, Pete. Uh, have yourself well, into some nice bubbly. Don't be wasteful. Well, and one weird angle I could take this too is that when Andrew is toasting with the champagne, he says, to beginnings and endings and the wisdom to know the difference. I love that line. So much. And it reminds me a lot of a quote that's used sometimes during like addiction counseling groups. And I don't know if it was big at the time. I know like a lot of like Alcoholics Anonymous 12 step programs use this thing. And the, the version of it, at least that I have in front of me right now, it says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So it, it feels like he's channeling the Alcoholics Anonymous line as they're toasting the bubbly. So maybe he doesn't drink the champagne because he's forsworn alcohol. <laughs> I don't think that's the intent at all here. That's not the intent whatsoever. I, I think I if anything, it. the addiction he's dropping is Josie. She's the bad habit. <laughs> and I think that's the intent. That is, that, that is certainly a way to look at it. I'm impressed, but no. Thank well, you. Are you impressed with me or the show or his sexism? Mainly you. Oh, thanks. And, <laughs> and Andrew says, you know, he's not angry. And he, he, he brings up that Eckert has a way of persuading people. And as soon as Josie hears that, she like clearly jumps on the idea of like, oh yeah, Eckert maybe do the whole thing. And just like tries to use any leverage she can. And he's just like, says like, yep, yep I, Eckert is the someone who is that type of person. Like that makes sense. And he says, you know, let there be no more lies between us, mm -hmm. which is this, it's like the second time it's been said in the episode. I which think. by the way, alluding to the fact that there will be a lie between them. Mm-hmm. So Andrew urges her to go to Eckert, and he says, you know, maybe Eckert loves you. Maybe he can help you get out of the country. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, in one way or the other, yes. She will no longer be in this plane of existence by the end of this conversation, right? <laughs> so all these pieces are being assembled. Um, even Cooper got to accidentally play a role in it, where they're at the police station, and he's talking to Albert out in the hallway, and he's like, Albert, I can handle this situation with Josie. And then Harry, like, walks down the hallway, gives this very meaningful glance at them, and then, like, storms out. And Albert's like, I think you just did. Uh, Which, by the way, Harry's been sent on the run now. Can we be appreciative of one moment when they're no. just, like, have this sh scene shot between them as Cooper and Rosenfeld break eye contact with one another to look towards Truman? And beyond them is a door with the numbers 106 on the door. It's like 10 6 my birthday. Generally, I find this as a gift to me. Every day, give yourself a present. <laughs> Unless you're the unplugged professor. Oh, no. And uh, Josie's got a present for Mr. Eckert in the form of a gun, which she takes to the Great Northern. Mm -hmm. And um, after Harry's been maneuvered there by Catherine and Pete, we have a conclusive confrontation. Eckert is joined in the elevator by Andrew, who makes a ghostly appearance. Eckert says that he doesn't believe in ghosts. Which, <laughs> which what a way to, like, address this. Like, I don't believe in you. Which is great. <laughs> la, 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 la. And then uh, Andrew's like, pity. It's an appealing notion. The return of the grisly phantom from the grave. You deserve haunting, to be sure. I'm alive. I really enjoy the way he does. I'm alive. Yep, no, I, it's fun. I, it, overall, Very playful. Well, oh, both of them have a weight with 
utilizing their voices, which I'm glad that we have at least this scene ha- with them together. I'm willing to believe they're business partners. I'm willing to believe they have a history. We barely get any scenes with them. This is the one scene we get with them together. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm willing to believe that there was some chemistry between them just based on the, the acting on display here. Mm-hmm. I think both performers did a great job. And in Andrew's altered version of the story, Josie had apparently warned Andrew of his death that was about to happen. Josie couldn't bear to see her husband perish, but Andrew suspects it also is because Josie wanted an advantage. So his version of the story is that Josie knew he was alive and set the whole thing up to, to surprise and trap Eckert. And the way that he kind of like weaves the words, it makes it sound like it was entirely on Josie's like intention that she didn't, like she knew all along, which is just funny because there we go. Uh, this is not going to do Josie any favors. Whatsoever. No, now setting up Eckert to have a reason to be suspicious of Josie and to go in kind of prepared with that mentality. Yep. He says that Josie loses her heart with alarming regularity with the local sheriff of all people. And he says, sometimes I wonder if our Josie does these twisted things deliberately. I love the idea that uh, with Andrew Packard just kind of giving off the line that says that his heart isn't like really in it anymore, mm-hmm. but he believes that Josie's heart comes at it constantly sure like and i'm gonna save our conversation more about josie for just a little bit longer okay but that line i think is really interesting that notion of andrew making that comment that josie does these twisted things deliberately was that part of his musings to get eckert in a certain mindset or oh, yeah. was that genuinely andrew wondering that well, why not just like call me call him b like why can't it be, be both, both? I'm just uh, asking I'm, the question. I'm heavily pushing towards more A than B, but I do mm-hmm. not think that they're mutually exclusive. Right, right. And uh, we, we get later on, uh, Cooper is kind of aware that Eckert and Josie are there. He is outside of their room when he hears the gunshot. He bursts through the door. Eckert stands up and he has this clear blood stain and he just starts laughing. And he falls over after taking a big, deep breath. Yep, just like big... So- By the way, can we appreciate the fact that, like, we hear the gunshot, he opens it through. Josie is draped over this man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he gets up, just like absolute confusion to, like, what even played out yes, in that it's scene. A good, it was a good way to handle that uh, suspense. And then as soon as, like, he falls over, we see Josie, like, has gotten up with the gun. Mm-hmm. Again, great cinematography. Great blocking. Great blocking. And, yeah, no, she admits to the, her crimes with him. And... Cooper asked the question that I'm sure audiences would want to know. He asked Josie, why did you shoot me? And Josie says, because you came here, I knew this day was going to come. I'm not going to jail. I can't. Truman then enters, ordering Josie to put the gun down. He's like roaring it. Great vocal delivery from Truman at that line. And it's at that point that I don't know what you think it looked like, but it looked like Josie was starting to aim the gun almost toward herself. Right? At least that's the way I envision it. She was holding the gun closer to her. Yes. Closer to her. Now, the question is, would she have shot herself? Would she have tried to, like, shoot one of those two, but then get gunned down by the other? All I know is she was not practicing gun safety whatsoever with that. That is very, very true. And then we hear, coming in from the audio, the wind chimes sort of sound effect. And Josie just kind of faints again. But not because Andrew Packard's alive this time. Seemingly nothing caused the fainting. It's like a fainting goat syndrome. Yep, but uh, this was the final faint. The faint the, of the death. The final faint. The final fantasy. Where Harry goes over and he says that she's dead. He feels no pulse. 
Uh, then before Cooper's eyes, Harry and Josie disappear. Spotlight. The Boom. spotlight is cast on the bed and Bob appears and Coop. crawls out <gasps> over the bed. What happened to Josie? <laughs> that was a terrible laugh. How did he laugh? Uh, I don't know. Let me do my own. <laughs> Is yeah, that good enough? Splice that in. That was better. And then the man from another place just shows up with his theme playing and he starts dancing, dancing on the bed. As you do. As you do. As and, you do. And Cooper just watches all of this, uh, staring before we see Harry return. He's holding Josie, repeating her name. And the camera pans down toward a drawer pole, a drawer knob. And in a very infamous scene, we see Josie's face superimposed over it. And it looks like she's in a, a very open to interpretation emotion. Uh, is it pain? Is it pleasure? Is it both? What is going on? And before we can really get a grasp of it, her face fades out and we get like a CG, 90s CG special effect face on the drawer pole as it like twists and contorts. Now, mind you, I think that when you pause at any point with this, it looks nice. Mm -hmm. But when it's actually in motion... The Blu-rays have done a very good job updating, like, everything mm -hmm. visually, which is a bad testament towards the CG. I mean, I, I, I will defend it to one extent to say that it gives an uncanny feeling mm -hmm. that a lot of CG from that time wasn't quite ready for what it was trying to do. So there is an uncanny element that I don't think is really that bad. Well, so I don't mind the CG, well, but I definitely understand that it is it is, you know... Not quite up to par with what we might expect now. Well, very similar to Catherine holding uh, her own possession. I, too, have great expectations. That was the book she was reading. Sure. Yeah, it was Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. You know, the book about, like, a boy named Pip and a convict. I didn't really read much of the summary on Wikipedia. That's fair. I didn't read the book at all either. <laughs> I'm not really sure I'm a big fan of Charles Dickens. It, it, it's, it's clearly on there, so there might be some use of theming. Eh. Like, because or she's holding it book. to the camera. I actually couldn't see it in the version I was watching. But really? I was watching it on Netflix, and I couldn't get a good look at it. Yeah, no, maybe, it's great expectations. Maybe and, the lighting like, was better on the Blu-ray than on the Netflix. <laughs> Blu-ray. thought, right? Yeah, what a thought. Um, but one thing you did have an advantage on with the Blu-ray, and one thing that might have set you with some great expectations, was the Log Lady intro. Yeah. Who kind of previewed the idea of a drawer pole mattering, yeah. which I'm sure made no sense for you as a first-time viewer. No, I was just thinking of us like, okay, do we... Is Laura Palmer the drawer pulled? Is someone trying to grasp out to this? What? Who is the she? It's a really weird intro. And uh, in the intro, Log Lady says... Now, no, no, Cleo, for the uh, episodes coming up, mind you, by the end of this, I want you to somehow connect this to David Lynch and the use of the production uh -huh. of Twin Peaks. Of course. Go ahead. What is a drawer pull, she asks. Can a victim of power end in any way connected to a drawer pull. And it's like this this intro is so clearly tied to the Josie thing that it's hard to disentangle it and <laughs> think of it as being anything else. It's a baffling question. Now, the tough position I'm in right now is that I know to what extent this is a factor in later episodes and the rest of the series, and you don't. So I can't say much here. My hands are tied. It's <laughs> got to tiptoe this minefield. So I guess I'm just going to ask you, Professor, to, to give some thoughts here. In, in our feature of a wonderful and strange question of the week, this time around, it's Professor, what happened to Josie? In truth, when I'm kind of looking at this and the fact that both Bob and the man from another place are appearing, it's... And the fact that the man from the other place is just dancing. 
in mm-hmm. in the reaction. Like, yes, he is known for his little dance, but yeah, it's curious in the sense that I'm almost wondering whether or not the inclusion of these beings. The biggest thing that I've got to try to pull from this is Bob's reaction. Mm-hmm. Now, do I take it in the sense of malice? Just like, oh, come on, whatever happened to Josie? <laughs> oh, yes, I know. Uh, or is it just like Bob being crazy himself and just literally like poking and prodding questions? Or what if Bob's like, what happened to Josie, Coop? I'm actually really confused. <laughs> I'm a little What's confused and I'm concerned. Uh, could you let me know? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and uh, then the man of another place comes dancing by. She definitely was someone of larger emotional turmoil that I don't know whether or not Josie is at this moment dead, but will she stay dead? Mm -hmm. And whether or not she might be going on her own little journey Mm -hmm. to say, for example, work out her turmoil somewhere else. It's, it's mainly the man from another place dancing that is getting at me. That makes me sort of think, what does this have to do with the red room? Sure. At all. Like, looking back on what the Red Room was all about with Cooper. It, ah. So I expect you, Professor, mm. to have a concrete answer that no. solves this question. No. I'm still working on the construction crew. I'm still working on the trucker hat. So let's detour a little bit and work our way around. I guess well, one question I was having earlier that I, you know, I said we should talk about later, and I guess later can be now. Um, what do you overall think of Josie? Like, how much of a victim and how much of a perpetrator do you see her in all this? You know, when Andrew's speculating with Eckert, either to manipulate or out of earnest, when he's speculating, you know, does Josie do this on purpose? Does she know she's doing it? What is the deal with Josie? Do you view her as a victim of power, like in the Log Lady intro? Or do you think she's a victimizer? Do you, What do you think Josie is? Josie is someone who was in a very manipulative spot in which... As we've heard, Eckerd has a way with words, has a way with people. It's been more than one person that has brought this up before. Mm -hmm. I feel that she is someone of circumstance that has tried to be, tried to follow the rules and follow the terms, but that's what's also screwed her over in the past. So she is clawing her way any way out. And it's reasonable because she has done anything for some of these people. It makes her a very pitiable character despite some of her more horrendous actions or attempt mm-hmm. on actions influenced by people that let's face it, aren't exactly the most noble. Uh, even if you got a prince on your side, it's not going to really come off that well when you're in someone's 20 year conspiracy, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if I know like Packard with his, you know, a, Dealing with Eckerd. So I guess, again, I return to the question of how much do you put the blame on her? I, I don't... I, I put the blame on her for her actions, but at the same time, it's not that I don't pity those actions. Okay. Do you pity Eckert or Andrew Packard? I'm sad or that... Or Catherine, I guess, for that matter. I'm sad that things that didn't work out so well for them, but they are definitely not taking this in the healthiest manner mm-hmm. of trying to work out their problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I, um... I think there's a lot with Josie we never really get to see. I, I feel like we never saw Josie in her peak. I, I feel that... What would a peak Josie even be? When Josie had this history with Eckert, we don't really know how that happened. I think that it's okay. Josie, in the end, was basically something 
to be adored and loved, but at the same time has been used to be tossed aside or used for other things. He is, she has been a doll and a plaything for these people for too long. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she kind of almost comes off like that in her performance and her actions, I don't think I'd want more. This is probably the de facto Josie that she's been, the yes man. And it was it did not take all that much to convince Josie to do the deed on Eckerd as likely as much as she had to do the deed on Packard. Mm-hmm. So as you imagine things, what do you think Josie's goals would have been? Like what would be Josie's end game with this whole she situation? She has no goals. She's just going off the seat of her pants off of just other people's things. Mm-hmm. Again, being a yes man, being someone that is going off of the whims of others, she just wants a way out. She wants to be done with it, but there's because no way out. Suppose that Catherine had died in the fire. Suppose that Josie had received a large amount of the money. Mm-hmm. What would she have done? Get out. Like, with enough money, she could probably go off somewhere and just live far, far away from Eckerd mm-hmm. to never be seen again. Mm-hmm. She can live a little bit of lavish lifestyle, which she probably has not known. She's known for buying very nice clothing for herself, mm-hmm. likely for that reason. It's the only sense of being able to reach an identity for herself and not the possession of Andrew or Thomas. Mm-hmm. So personally, sure. I think that she would <laughs> reach early retirement. Okay. Interesting. Well, she did reach a form of retirement, we think, in the form of the drawer pull. <laughs> so, again, I circle back to the question, what happened to Josie, Professor? I told you before, it's it's hard to say. I think it's got to do with something with the Red Room. Something but, with the Red Room. Something with the owls in the Red Room. Uh, and this I, is leaving you stumped. It leaves me stumped. truly does, because I did not expect... I expected... <laughs> I would be scared if you expected this. <laughs> you saw it coming. I expect that there's a connection between like the men uh, from the Red Room sure. as well as Bob, but mm-hmm. I didn't think that they would be close to another. I always just thought that they were just like on the different factions of the Owls, but okay. they, they were literally just hanging out in the same room, kind of like not really reacting to one another. Sure. So, hmm. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I mean, one thing to possibly consider in your in your stipulations is that the man from another place is known to speak in a rather backwards fashion, right? Uh, with his dialogue being forward and backward in the way that's portrayed. Yes. And Bob is a palindrome, right? Said the same way forward <laughs> as backward. That's not a joke. That's a, that's a fact. But what's the long form of Bob? It's Robert. You can't do that with Robert. Uh, but he doesn't go by Robert. He goes by Bob. Do you think that's like the mother just called him Bob? His name is just I, Bob. Uh, does Bob have a mother? Does Bob... <laughs> do you think Bob has a mother? Is is Owl a palindrome? Or does it just become Lowo? <laughs> I rest my case. <laughs> and I think it's time we rest this podcast episode. Um, we have only six episodes left of Twin Peaks. How does that feel? I wish I didn't know. But at the same time, now I know. Mainly just because I don't know when the train would usually end. And I suppose there was also subsequent material, so... I think you would have saw on the Blu-ray when it just suddenly didn't have any more episodes <laughs> and you were on the last disc. <laughs> I think it would have seemed obvious. May may have, uh, may have just... May have came to that conclusion. I don't know. 
Um, but we are. There's a the lot end. of Blu-rays though in my set. I've got the Z to A collection. Yeah, so you so. have the you have the Return and you have Fire Walk with me, right? Yeah, so I could have just gotten lost with that's them. That's fair. That's fair. Well, spoiler alert: you have six episodes left of the original Twin Peaks, mm-hmm. and so we're as we near this destination, as we're within range of the ending of season two, uh, we are looking ahead toward when we finish season two and have our season two look back episode. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I think would be kind of nice uh, to have. Uh, would be that if you, dear listener, have some questions for the professor to muse upon, uh, I would enjoy seeing those questions sent to us either via email or Twitter. If I happen to like your question, I will pose it to the professor when we finish season two. They can be questions on anything that we have talked about or not talked about regarding seasons one and two. Please avoid questions that involve things after or outside of seasons one and two. Uh, but I would love those. And even if they're questions that are a little bit silly or weird, those are all cool. So oh, even yes. if they're questions that aren't Twin Peaks related, if you want to ask the professor about Hamilton, go ahead and do that. And if you want to know uh, my thoughts on what Pete's favorite sandwich would be, I'd say uh, probably either a good... Shh, don't say it. Don't say it. Oh, okay. Let the one. listener ask Let if they're the interested. Ask it. Okay. So if you have any questions and feel free to send one, send ten, doesn't matter, whatever. Feel free to email them to snakeeyedreams at gmail.com or Twitter tweet us at snakeeyedreams1. That's the numeral one, not Obi-Wan.